We're going to look at the book of Hebrews again this morning, as this weekend we'll be celebrating the 4th of July and all of those festivities that take place as we come into the coming week. I want us to look to the book of Hebrews here. We remember back in our country to its establishment. That's exactly what we're going to be doing in the book of Hebrews today. Please note, as I read and you follow along, chapter 10 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 32. Verse 32, Hebrews chapter 10. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Would you pray together with me this morning? Lord, Father, God, we bow before you and your word. We thank you for giving us your word and so faithfully preserving it down through the ages that we might have it in our own language here in our hands today. But we know that your word is inspired. And that word, when it goes forth, it does not return void, but accomplishes what it was sent to do. And so, Lord, I pray you would send these words out to these folks today and do the work that you intend it to do, that we might grow thereby, that we might, in the graciousness of looking back on all the things that you have given us by your mercy and by your grace and by your covenant promise, rejoice in you and in our settled conviction. Not only did you once come, not only did you save us, that you're coming for all who you have saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The accomplishments of the new covenant are many. We've been looking at them in their myriad different flavors and kinds in Hebrews chapter 10. And now we move on to what we need to accomplish in the new covenant. Not what we need in the sense of need to do, but what we need to understand and possess as we accomplish the new covenant goals set before us. And for that, we need total recall. Total recall. To remember. Our text begins by calling us to remembrance, but recall the former days after you were illuminated. Photizo in the Greek. Photizo from which we get photo, photograph. The sun shines is a photo period. The whole idea of light and illumination. Of course, that sprang in my mind to the olden days, which is a surprising for me to think of these as olden days, but the way in which we take photographs now and the way we used to take photographs is quite different. The technology has changed by leaps and bounds, and now it's done with something like digits. 
I have no intention of making any sort of foray into the land of digits or the digitized photography, for I would be certainly over my head. But since this is a day of recollection, as we recall our past history as Americans on the 4th of July and the gaining of our independence, we also are remembering as Christians in the book of Hebrews our past history with God. To recall the illumination is to, in a sense, go back into those picture books of old. You know, the family albums, the pictures. I know now they're digitized and they sit there and flip for you, but we used to have to sit down and look at them. And there were photographs all the way back in family history to the black and white photos and then the onset of color photographs and all of those kinds of things. But an integral feature to making a photograph was the necessity of light. Without light, you still cannot take photographs. You need illumination. In the photography of old, we used to use something called film. You say, Pastor, what was it comprised of? I'm not sure, but it was amazing stuff. Once you put it in your camera and rolled it in there, you had to leave that thing closed because if you opened up the back of your camera and all the light got in, it would overexpose your film and it was all dead. You couldn't use it to take pictures anymore. You had to protect it from the light until that moment when the film was advanced by frame. The shutter and the aperture would go on the camera just for a brief moment, letting in just a skosh just a modicum of light for a brief moment, and that would expose the film. The light was needed to affect the image imprint on the film. And so also there was the exposure time, how much light was allowed in, and you could set your camera, as you still can your smartphones, to have a longer time exposing your picture to light if you're taking pictures by the light of the moon rather than by the light of the sun. So exposure time was also important for the image to be placed, if you will, upon the film. And when that is done, it makes something called, well, it's something called a negative. Or they make it into that. Now, that's not a picture yet. I mean, it's sort of a picture. It sort of has an image on it. In the old days, when you used to look at your images, you'd look at those negatives and say, well, what? who is in that film? Who, where is this? I'm not quite sure. It kind of looks vaguely familiar, but it's all in dark tones and faded out grays and over whites and all those kinds of things so that features are kind of garbled. And then there's a third stage that is necessary where there's the development of those negatives. Chemicals are used in different processes and bathing in excess and putting them on a different type of thing, and I'm not going to get into that. I'm just saying it needs to be developed. And when it's developed, then those fuzzy pictures that are the negative now come clear with clearly defined outlines color in the color film, and now you can plainly see, oh, I know who that is. I remember, yes, and there I am in the picture, which, of course, makes that an important picture to you. Can I have an amen? I mean, we all realize when you start looking at family albums, who do we like looking for the most? Because we're all from Adam, we like looking at 
well, who has two thumbs and likes to find themselves in a photograph? This guy, right? We all like to see ourselves in the photo. And if we don't look good in the photo, well, what does that make it? A bad photo. That's right. But there was one time when we took a good photograph, when God, in a sense, illuminated us. And we need at times to go forward in our Christian walk to go back to our first illumination. When God shone his light upon the dead film of our life and imprinted himself and his image onto us. Recall the former days in which you were, after you were illuminated. You were illuminated. We need to have total recollection of that at times and remember that, and that is what we're doing this morning. The total recall of our conversion to Christ. It is needed in order to develop endurance to go on to the goal, to the full picture of the Christian life over time. Today we'll join in our recollections along with our Hebrew brothers who were called on to do so so long ago. We join them so that we may endure to the end and have our family album complete. Baby pictures to our dying day and our graduation to heaven and his promises with the Lord. What we need to accomplish the new covenant goal is total recall. Let's begin with verse 32 again this morning. Recall your illumination by the light. Recall your illumination by the light in verse 32. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Illuminated means to understand the gospel. Before God gives you his light, before God provides the unction of the Holy Spirit to help you see, you can't understand the gospel. You can't understand your sin. You can't understand your need for salvation. But when God shines his light of illumination upon you, all of a sudden you see. For once I was blind, the Bible says, and now I can see. I have been illuminated and I can see. I have then and therefore believed. The photo of God, the photo period of his life has imprinted upon us and we are changed irreversibly, just like the film. This is illustrated in Acts chapter 26, verses 17 through 18, when Paul describes the ministry that God had sent him to as he defends himself before the powers that be in the land, and he's going soon to die. He testifies what God sent him to do in his ministry as an apostle. In Acts 26, 17, it says that Paul relates that God said to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, listen, to whom I, God says to Paul, now send you. Here's the purpose, to open their eyes in order to turn them, here it is, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
that they re may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what God sent Paul to do, to give them the light. Paul, again, speaking to the Corinthian church in chapter 4 and verse 6, said, For it is God who commanded light. It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. And now listen to this. And has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what happens when the shutter opened and the light came into your heart and the imprintation of Jesus Christ came upon you and you knew that you knew that you knew that you'd been changed and Christ was now in you and with you. Now you could see to follow Jesus. Now you were illuminated by the light of God. But notice what he says about this noticing and going back to recollect our illumination. He goes right into this. It's maybe, be, maybe this is a little surprising to you. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, he says to these, hum these Hebrew believers, listen, you endured a great struggle and with sufferings. So you were changed and now remember you were changed and remember the great struggle, the light that shone and then entered you into the world of a struggle. This Hebrew word, or excuse me, this Greek word is a word which we get our word athletic from. This struggle, athletis, and this challenge, if you will, of the athletic contest is in view. There was always a form of conflict when one competes against another, is there not? One team against another, one wrestler against another, one boxer in the ring against another. A combat, so to speak. You're illuminated, you now see, and into the battle you go. See, this is not illustrating a small battle, but rather a great one, a severe one, one with heavy fighting. When you're illuminated by God, in a sense, you're being drafted into the army of God. And you think you know what it's all about, but you don't. And you start in your training, and the first thing you learn is that there's people shooting out there. And you're going to need to be prepared for the fight. Too many Christians are told that when you get saved, there's no more fight. Everything's easy. And that is actually not the gospel. That's a lie. When soon as you join Christ's army, uh, and by the way, you know, we used to sing songs like this, and every so often in this church, we trot it out. An old song called Onward Christian What? Soldiers. Onward Christian Soldiers. And as we think of the 4th of July, and we go back to Independence Day to become a nation, these people had to become not just those who were colonists, but those who are now rebelling against their king, and they become then rebels. Rebels who are fighting for their independence. If you wanted it, you had to fight for it. And when you're drafted into God's army, and that's really what election is, you aren't asked. You're joined. The light, flash, imprints upon you, and now you're in. 
Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war. Our inclination may be when we hear this is to run for it. To hide, to head for the hills, as they say, the enormity of those against us struggling in this fight are too many. Some of us may just decide to become a conscientious objector. I've had people say, well, pastor, sometimes you're too militaristic when you talk, when you preach the word. I say, well, I'm just saying what God said. Apostle Paul said we're to treat this like soldiers. And what soldier in going off to war doesn't separate himself from the cares of this world that he might serve the one who sent him? Onward, Christian soldiers. And so we are soldiers rather than become a conscientious objector. We prepare ourselves for it. Remember the past times when you entered the fight. See, the cause is Jesus Christ. The cause is truth, the truth of Jesus. And it is then and therefore that our newly imprinted conscience that knows that Jesus is Lord, that demands our commitment. Truth then Conscience demands commitment if our cause is truth. Notice the word endured. From the time of your illumination, the writer of Hebrews says, remember, you endured this struggle. It means you stood firm. You bore up under the weight. You remained in line even though it was terribly frightening. There is a sense in which take on ourselves the words of James when James tells us, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Produces patience. The struggle produces in us an ability to continue to endure. We started out enduring. Let's not forget. Let's continue to endure. I'm still standing. Words, lyrics to a song. I'm still standing. Remember the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle. Sometimes it's so easy for us to count it hard, to say, Lord, this is unfair. This is a burden that is too problematic. Sometimes rather than counting it all joy, we count it all gloom. We count it all despair. We retreat into depression. We need God's view of trial, God's view of struggle, God's view of the light. He's given us light and now we stand. I'm still standing. To know that God's view of a trial is to make us strong, make us so we can stand under even more than we did before, that we can depend on God to bring us through. I'm still standing. And as the lyric goes, after all this time, 
And as you look back in your Christian life and the more the years stack up and you faithfully stand with him, you can say, I don't know how it is I got here. I don't know why I'm still in church. I don't know why I'm still holding up the gospel. I don't know after all the struggle, all the resistance, all the tragedy, all the different things that happened, and now even the sufferings, yet I'm still standing because of the light. Our illumination is then secondly lit by enduring the sufferings. We look back in our photo album of our Christian life, we see the sufferings. Pathema is the Greek word, but you might recognize it if I put it into its root, root from which we get pathos. The pathos. Any of you have had SpeechCom 101, you realize that when you're giving a speech, if you give it with pathos, you've given it with Passion, passion, desire, uh, the sufferings that elicit passion, that bring about a great emotional response from the injury and from the terror and from the trial. You'll kind of notice that the sufferings sort of have a similarity to our physical life. And it seems that I've had a little bit of background in this and I've tried this out a few times. And the pattern goes this way. You injure your physical body. Suffering. You have to undergo surgery. Repair. And then you have to get into recovery. Injury, surgery, recovery. I'd like to take you back just for a moment because I think there's a parallel idea uh, that floats along in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 referring to the life of Jesus and his suffering, his endurance. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 reads, but we all see Jesus. We all see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. The suffering is the injury. He is injured on our behalf. Our sin injures him. The wrath of God for our sins injured him. That suffering of death is really the surgery where God does surgery to save us through putting the suffering and death upon his son. And then it says, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He tasted death in a surgical sense, in a reality, because he was injured by the wrath of God, and then crowned with glory and honor, the recovery the resurrection, the ascension. That is what we are waiting for even as we are born in sin and that we're born again in Christ, but we're born into suffering. There's a sense in which when we go to church, we are in recovery. We are, in a sense, we are coming to where our surgery is giving us the things that we can mend those things from our past and grow. And then finally, we will grow into glory as God saves us at the very end of life and we will be like him, resurrected. Because he suffered, we suffer with him, illuminated to sufferings. 
As John said in his gospel, remember the word that I said to you. As Jesus relates, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Because he died, we die with him. Because he is crowned with glory and honor, we are honored with him. As even in this book of Hebrews, it says of him to us, uh, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Because he tasted death, we taste none. We have life, abundant, eternal, but for the present. We remember the sufferings. We remember this great endurance from our past that still endures to today. I'm still standing because we see the light. So onward, Christian soldier. Secondly, we recall our negative exposure from the light. Just like the negative looks negative when you look at it. It looks backwards. The lights aren't right. The clarity's not there. It's hard to establish what's going on. It seems like everything's wrong. Look at verse 33. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Let's look at that verse. Recall your negative exposure from the light. It says you were made a spectacle. A spectacle really isn't a positive word. If you want to be made something, you don't want to be made a spectacle. This term comes from the Greek theaters, from the plays, the dramas that they put on. They would come to see this great event. And by the way, most of their spectacles were tragedies. Just like most opera. Have you ever listened to opera? Most of it's tragic. It's about real life, real love, real loss, real pain, real despair, hence real big music. On stage for all to see. I really love what the uh, translators of the King James Version did with this Greek word. For they used a word from their day. It was this, and I'll read it. They remember, remember. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, says the King James Version. A gazing stock. This is one who is set up to be gazed at, mocked, and despised. You're familiar with similar terms. Who wants to be a laughing stock? You only get to be a laughing stock if you begin as a gazing stock. They all saw it. Now they're all laughing. Or a mocking stock is another old term. It's a compound word, this gazing stock, and it's interesting that the word stock is the second of the compound terms joined together. The stock, if you will, of the humiliation to be put in town square in the stocks. 
as a form of punishment for breaking a statute, a law of the town, so that all who would pass by the center of the city would see you there with your feet shackled in the wood and your hands and your neck in the yoke, and they could mock you and laugh at you. A gazing stock is exactly what this negative term. And then that opens you up to the negative, this dark, surreal world of the Christian life of suffering. For our negative exposes us negatively to reproaches, exposed to negative reproaches, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. First, reproaches, of course, that means to ridicule, to have the utmost of contempt. Look at them. It is more often that a Christian will be held in contempt for proclaiming their Christianity and living it. They will be brought up for public shame more often than to be honored for it. And certainly as our world goes in the direction that it is, it will get worse. Since this book of Hebrews is written in the highest form of Greek rhetoric, we need to understand that there is something here that is being brought for as a nuance, even, I believe, from the world of the Stoics. The Greek world, the Stoics, wrongly, as a wrong form of religion, did not believe that one was to take pleasure in life, but rather to go through it stoically, if you will, surviving, taking it in humility. But the phrase that they would repeat many times among the Stoics was this. They said, to see a brave man fighting misfortune. They said, to see a brave man fighting misfortune is a spectacle to God. The world may make us a spectacle and fill us with reproaches, but God sees, if you will. Paul gives a similar flavor to this understanding in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is teaching the Corinthians against having individual pride that causes division amongst the brethren in the church when he says in chapter 4, verse 9, I think that God has displayed us, Paul says, the apostles. I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last. Now pay attention to this. As men condemned to death, for we have been made, here it is, a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And now he describes the spectacle of their life in this wise. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Anybody ever wanted to sign up for being an apostle? Here is the calling card. Here are the credentials of the true apostle. Poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Verse 12 now. And we labor, working with our own hands, being, here's our word, reviled, we blessed, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made 
as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. What a picture. What a picture. Look at this. Who is that? Is that the Apostle Paul in there? That looks horrible. That looks terrible. And many of us have those same things in our own lives. What a negative picture. And the negative exposure to tribulations. Exposed to negative tribulations. Even the Thessalonians were under such a duress. A true picture of tribulation. Paul writes to them in the second book of Thessalonians chapter 1. He says in verse 3, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. As it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. What a wonderful testimony. Their faith is growing exceedingly. How was it growing? How did they get here? And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Not only is their faith increasing, their mutual love for each other in unity is blossoming. In verse 12, or verse 4, Paul says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith. Listen now, in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. The negative picture of Christianity to the entire world is that we get dumped on, we get persecuted, we get the lower end of everything, and that's what they see. It's the negative. And sometimes that's all we see. It's yet to be developed. It's just the negative. And if we concentrate on all of that, we can't endure, but we need to become those who endure. as these Thessalonians did. Paul goes on to say, verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians 1, these evidences, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may listen, that you may listen, be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Jesus said, by many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. These negative pictures of us are earning us great reward. But more than that, they earn us friendship. I want you to see the very last portion of verse 33. We're exposed then not only as those who are suffering not only as those who have reproaches and tribulations, but we are also exposed for who our friends are, who our companions are. Look at the end. You became, partly while you became, companions of those who were so treated. How do you know who your friends are? You know who your friends are, for when you are being attacked, they don't leave you. When you're on the front lines taking the bullets from the world and from the evil one, and sometimes even from Christians who are functioning like babies or functioning like brats or functioning like rebels, they don't leave. They stand the line with you. We're being called to remember who your friends are and your companions. Friends of tribulation. 
This word companions comes from a Greek word that many of you are probably familiar with. It comes from koinonia. It means to have fellowship, to be partnered with. In a way, it's saying you're partners in suffering, tribulations, and trials in this negative part of the picture of your Christian life. The church stands together on the world stage as a spectacle before them all, and yet it stands together. The high drama of the tragedy of the theater is before all the eyes of the world. But let me tell you this, when you stand the battle with your Christian brothers and sisters, you then put in your photo album a memory. Why is it you men, you ladies who are in the service, as soon as you go back and open up those albums and you see what we used to call hoo-ha or hoo-ya pictures, where there you were in a foreign field, there you were in a land prepared to defend your country or after the battle, and there you stand looking tough, looking dirty, looking mean. And you remember, oh yeah, I remember him. He was a good one. Ah, this one here, he was my brother. This is my closest friend. This is my buddy. Those bonds are formed in battle. And they're formed the same way in church. Many of us here have walked through the valley of the shadow of death together. And we've walked together through the tribulation and trials and we look at the picture, and when we go back in time, we say, yeah, now I remember. I remember that time, and I remember my brothers and sisters were here. It is so similar to what Paul says again to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And again, Paul saying to Timothy, that more timid of the pastors, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, do not therefore be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner. But share with me, be a companion with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. When we look at the negatives and we see all of it together, we say, oh, I can't quite make that out. Does that look like, I think that's the Apostle Paul. We might say, well, that looks like Brother Dan. That, that looks like Brother Dustin. That looks like Brother Mark. That looks like BZ. We were there. We're in the negative together. And now let her see in your notes, there's a final thing to recall. We turn, if you will, from darkness to more light. We turn to development. Verse 34 reads, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, 
knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. This is the development of what happened to you in that flash of light of regeneration. That not only did you become one who's in tribulation and trials and sufferings and tragedies, but also you've been developed in your character and your person. You become one of clear compassion. You've developed into one with clear compassion. For the writer of Hebrews says, you had compassion on me in my chains. Obviously, he's been imprisoned. They did not desert him. They became companions of him in compassion. Friends of compassion. This is where that negative now is put into the development fluid and the colors come clear and the shapes and outlines of the players in the Christian life are now very clear. Paul says, or the writer says of Hebrews says, you became those who had compassions upon me, the picture of your Christian life is now clear. It's in focus. True friends. True friends who stood with me while I was in jail, while I was going through tribulations. Because true friends stand with you in and through tribulations. As Paul related in 2 Timothy verse 16, Chapter 1, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. To the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. Now listen to this. And was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought, he sought me out very jealously, and he found me. I don't know if you understand what this means. Paul was in house arrest, and Paul was chained, and Paul was going to his death, and Onesiphorus goes, and he owns Paul in front of the powers of a mighty nation that were going to condemn him to death, and the fear would be that if I was there and I was ministering to Paul, that they might clamp chains on me as well. But no, with zeal, with desire, with pathos, with passion, he sought to align himself with the imprisoned Paul. Now the picture of Onesiphorus is in technicolor, fully outlined. Very zealously he sought me and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me in Ephesus. Developed compassion. And now the picture of the Christian is developed into joyful generosity. For you had compassion on me in my chains. Now listen, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. What a a profound Greek word to use. And, the, and this is a perfect translation in the English. To plunder. When you plunder, you take by force what is won after the battle. Once the enemy is vanquished, 
you take all the good stuff. Food, clothes, wealth, riches, everything. To the victor belong what? The spoils, the plunder. That's the word. You allowed me to plunder you. Joyfully. You know, plundering is different than taking an offering. You realize that, right? We take an offering and that's a voluntary. You get to decide yourself what you give. When you're plundered, they don't ask you, you're going to need this. Oh, well, then I'll leave it. No, they say, that's good. That's your good stuff. I'm taking that. The writer of Hebrews is saying, basically, I took everything good you have, and you joyfully gave me everything good you have for the cause of Christ, like as if you have nothing left because you're generous. You're friends of those in chains. In your generosity, continuing in the ministry. We're going to touch on this again, but let me just let me just give you a primer, if you will, a, a commercial for what's coming in Hebrews 13. When we're called on to do this by way of command, Hebrews 13, 3, remember, it says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. And those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. So when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When one part of the body is need, in need, we say, take what I have. Boy, wouldn't that be something? Developed picture of Christianity, joyful generosity. And then thirdly, developed into acknowledged heavenly possessions. Why could they be so generous that they could be plundered? For the cause of Christ. Knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. To hold everything, every form of wealth and goods in this world lightly is to have your Christian picture come full focus into maturity. We have more coming in the new covenant. Better promises. As 2 Corinthians said, we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And again, Paul says in Timothy, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing, a better possession. And even enduring possessions, as Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. Where? In heaven. Hold these possessions light. Let them be plundered for the cause of Christ. For your possessions in heaven are greater and enduring. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Your great reward is in heaven. 
the personal possessions of heaven make the earthly possessions pass away. To fight with those who are fighting. To stand like they stood at the establishment of the United States of America, the war for independence. How much greater to stand with Christ? You see, mostly we're going to be outnumbered. Just like we were when George Washington fought. Here in the church, we're always small. And here on the Independence Day, it seems in this church, we're even smaller. How depressing it can be, amen? How hard it can be to be small. But remember history. I'd like to take you back in time to a battle that couldn't be won. It was in France, near a place called Agincourt. A young king, Henry V, he and his, his few, his army, with many nobles certainly, but it was a new army. Army where what was called the little men of England were involved. The little men of England who did not have the money for great armor and great helmets and great swords, but these little men had taught themselves something from the time of their childhood. They taught themselves the long bow. And the yew bows made from the center stalk of the yew tree became one of the most mighty weapons of war. And these common men took their bows and went to war with their king Henry V to take his land back from the king of France. And they were met by a vast host, fully armored knights, heavy horses armored, the cavalry the chivalry of all of France, the fleur-de-lis flying, and the king himself there. There was no way they could stand against this army. And in little skirmishes and battles along the way, the English ran. And the rivers were being too full, and they couldn't cross them, and they were being penned in. And it seemed that all was lost, and the numbers were too full. And Westmoreland, one of the king's cousins, one of the leaders of the army came to the king and wished in that morning when the French were arrayed before them that they had more men. We're too small, he said, and we might even say it here in this church, we're too small, what can we do? Well, let me give you Shakespeare's words that he put into the mouth of Henry V, and they are these. My cousin Westmoreland, what's this that he wishes were it so? No, my fair cousin, if we are marked to die, we are e'en now to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care who doth feed upon my cost. 
It yearns me not if men wear my garments. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith, my cuz. Wish not a man from England. God's peace I would not lose so great an honor as one man more. Methinks would share from me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, though my, my host, that he which hath not stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passage shall be made and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispin. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispin. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispin. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Christmas Day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups refreshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin, Crispin shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we we in it shall be remembered. We, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed, shall think themselves accursed, they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. And this small band of brothers went out to fight, and the French charged, and charged again, and the bowmen set loose their flights, and the nobles stood fast in center, and held, and they whittled the pride of France to the bone. On St. Crispin's Day, too few we cannot win. Look to your right, 
Look to your left. We are few. And what picture do you see? You see us in the battle. You see us in the negative. You do not see the development of the picture that God is etching upon you. as you endure and win. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, we are your happy few. Let us wish not for one more. Let us wish that the glory go to you. You would use us small, the small men, the small women of the world to accomplish your purpose here in the negative land of our picture. For we know we have an inheritance in heaven and we know the battle won. So let us fight as onward Christian soldiers we go marching as to war. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.